the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my buds Mike and Brian are with me. Mike, how are you today, my friend? Doing really well. How about you guys? I'm doing good. Uh, very sore. Uh, very tired. I'll get into the reason why in my geek out. Uh, Brian, how about you? I'm sleepy. Oh, yeah? I still haven't caught up from the time change. Yeah, I love the fact that we're finally getting cooler weather down here. I don't like the fact that when it's 630 outside, I feel like it's 10 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> it is full on dark at 4.30 p.m. in Boston. Oh, wow. So, I mean, at least there's this is the good thing is that I'm getting out of work and I'm riding my bike. I'm not riding my bike at dusk because now that it's like full on dark, my lights are doing more than they are at dusk. So that much I'm happy about. And good. have have I got a light show decked out all over my bike? So. <laughs> He's got strobes and, you know, you know, neon. Yes. And yes, like you're I mean, not like actual neon lights, but yeah, I've got I've got strobe hub lights so that you can see me from the side. I've got lights on my basket. I've got a 750 lumen. I will blind you headlamp and <laughs> a good tail light. It's if somebody runs me over, it's not because they don't know that I'm there. They're just sick of it. <laughs> you know, I. I don't mind like the bright white LEDs on cars. Um, I don't like them on jacked up trucks and SUVs. So they're like right in my. Okay, yes, you can see the road. And now you can see most of Tarrant County. At least you're not still on that uh, little Toyota that's so low to the ground that it's always like. Right there in your. Yeah. (sighs) That's the thing that gets me is, though, I will have all of that. And one time somebody starts, they're just not paying attention. They want to make a right-hand turn. And so they just start coming over into the bike lane when I'm right there. And I just kind of scream at them like, I am a rolling parody of visibility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're just uh, offended that you're celebrating Christmas so early. I mean, actually, some of the Bostonian cyclists deck out their bikes for Christmas. I mean, we're talking (laughs) garland and holly and Christmas lights above the normal safety. Like, that's what I should do this year. No, what we need to do is get a amplifier poked up to your mic, have it decked out somewhere, and need to download the sound effect of Ghostbusters Ecto-1. Their their siren (laughs) going down the street and so that whenever you're riding around, that's just what everyone here is blaring out. I have thought about it (laughs) because I do have a Bluetooth speaker and I'll, you know, I'll I'll play cycling music, you know, stuff that's not going to distract me while I'm cruising down the road or if I'm in a bike lane or like if I'm on a bike path, I could just crank it up to whatever I want and not have to worry about it. And I've thought about, man, what would I get arrested for if I used the Ecto-1 siren? It's hard to say. I mean, but they'll find a reason. I'll get ticketed for impersonation of a Ghostbuster, I'm sure. Just tell them that you ain't afraid, no ghost. (laughs) I am afraid of pepper spray, so... (laughs) 
So, I mean, I guess I have this question. I don't think I've ever asked it before we got to Geek Out. How did we get here? <laughs> uh, somebody said something about uh, the time change. Oh, yeah. There we go. All yeah, right. That was, yeah, that was you, Brian. That was you oh, who said something about the, the somebody, time change. <laughs> somebody who, an, an anonymous person. <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I I never go outside, so I don't really notice the difference in the sunlight. Outside's for other people. Yeah, and that's the problem: is all of the other people are already out there, and I want to avoid <laughs> them. Can't fault his logic, Mike. I mean, I I got nothing. Yeah. Well, let's head to geek out. I will kick it off this week. Uh, not been too heavy geek wise. Um, I've decided a couple of months ago to reread the Lord of the Rings again, just because that's something I just kind of do. And I think many people do at least once a year or so. I can't fault you. Christopher Lee would read them once a year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just get in the mood for it. And I just finished up the battle of Helm's deep in the two oh, towers. That is my wow. favorite part. It that was so a good. great section. Even to this day, I'm still finding new things in the books. I mean, that's the great thing about books is that you always are. Different things capture your imagination or new things jump to your attention because of where you are this time around. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and of course, we're coming up on the, this blew my mind, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the release of The Fellowship of the Ring. La, 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 I'm not listening to you. I'm not old. La, 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 la. <laughs> yeah, I know it makes me feel slightly aged, but I'm like, huh. Oh, that's an excuse to have a marathon. I don't know what is. Right. And, you know, we got the Snyder cut of the Justice League, so I'm waiting for the Jackson cut of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which will probably be about eight and a half days long. (laughs) (laughs) The Scourging of the Shire. Finally, the Scourging of the Shire. Yeah. Yeah. Four whole discs dedicated specifically to Tom Bombadil. Oh, geez. Like... What an amazing character, and what a prudent cut. Yes. Yeah, seriously. As much as I would have loved to have seen the Barrow Downs, it needed to go. Yeah, the Barrow Downs would have been a thing to see. But when you're trying to tell a story in this format, you can't make a pop-up version of the book, or it will be awful to watch. (laughs) At least in its entirety. Each individual moment might be cool, but... Mm -hmm. So anyway, other than rereading The Lord of the Rings, uh, went and saw the new Marvel movie, The Eternals, and I am happy to report that it was one of the okayest Marvel movies to come out. (laughs) I mean, they're due one of those by this point. Like, what is this even about? Like, I've I've heard The Eternals, I've heard people say The Eternals, but I have no idea what this film is. So I, I wasn't aware, but apparently The Eternals in comic book form have been around since like the Kirby days. Um, uh, given the title, I would have expected longer than that, but go on. <laughs> They're basically a race of immortals who have been sent to protect the Earth from a very specific threat and have been told by higher power than theirs that they can only interfere when that one threat is concerned. That's why they never popped up when there was, you know, Ultron robots or Chitari or, you know, freaking Thanos. So this sounds a little convenient. Yeah, slightly, <laughs> slightly. Um, 
it it had some plot issues and some timing issues. Uh, I was okay with most of the performances. The heroes are fun, uh, well designed, and the individual performances were for the most part very well done. It'll be interesting to see how they they fit it into the rest of the MCU. They're really trying to stretch things out. I've always viewed it as you can kind of put all of the Marvel characters into three specific camps. There's the X-Men camp, all of the mutants. There's the Avengers camp, you know, everyone who has been or is currently an Avenger. And then there's everyone else. And Marvel right now is trying to, Marvel and Disney, I think they're trying to bring the everyone else into the fold as far as the movie universe is concerned because they've they've done a lot of Avengers stuff. It's still going to be a while before we see any X-Men stuff. And sometimes the everything else has worked for them. I mean, they did Guardians of the Galaxy, and it was awesome, uh, along with Ant-Man. I really enjoyed that. Um, I might be one of the only people here who thinks this, but I thought Doctor Strange was just okay. And this movie I- kind of felt like that to me. You know, it's funny because like you, you you say that and I have like no strong feelings about that opinion. So, yeah, I watched it when I had COVID. There were elements (laughs) of Doctor Strange that I liked a lot, but I thought, you know, the movie as a whole didn't do much for me. Mm -hmm. It was just it was one of those things like it was a little bit like we were talking about with the Lord of the Rings. Like Individual segments of it were fantastic. Taken as a whole. I don't think it, it, it quite worked for me. I mean, as a whole, it was really good. As a movie, it was okay. That's how <laughs> I felt about The Eternals. Fun parts, meh, okay parts. As a whole, well, it's, you know, we got this to get to what they're doing with, with the rest of the MCU. So right. we'll see how it all folds in. This we is kind of a to stepping... get that green rock in there somehow, and this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> there you go. I kind of view this as a stepping stone movie. Oh, did they not? Col- did Thanos not collect that one? No, no, we didn't get the stepping stone. That's why his <laughs> plot progression stopped. He literally turned to dust. <laughs> it wasn't because of the snap. It was because the writers literally had nowhere else to go with him. That and Josh Brolin was already engaged otherwise for Dune. <laughs> Which we'll get to that in a moment. But Speaking first, <laughs> that have been the perfect segue, but I'm going to interrupt it. Segueus interruptus. Um <laughs> I just broke Brian. <laughs> I can tell if that was him still laughing or if that was a chair creaking. <laughs> I, was, I was taking a sip of water right at that moment. <laughs> I about drowned myself. <laughs> Alert the CDC that this one is a podcast casualty. <laughs> Podcast-oriented accidental drownings. One for 2021. Just be you and I on the next podcast, Mike. You better believe it. I'm going to be wearing a life preserver for that one. We do a video chat. Mike, why are you wearing scuba gear? You've killed one of us, James. I'm not taking chances. Anyway. So I mentioned earlier, uh, a bit sore, a bit worn out today. That's because yesterday was our local FCA Kingdom's uh, Queen's Champion Tournament. And it was a local one, so instead of having to day trip it or you know find a hotel, it was only a 35-minute drive for me in Dallas. So that was great. A lot of rapier fighting going on, 
And I chose this time out just to uh, help marshal it because I'm still kind of recovering from my heel injury. That and the Friday before, I got home from work rather late. And when I got up, there were kids to help take care of. They had a soccer game that day and several other things kept on delaying me. And so I just made the decision. I'm not going to stress about this. I get there when I get there. And if I get there in time to sign up, I'm going to fight. If I don't, I'll volunteer, I'll marshal, I'll do other things. And I got there just a bit too late. But, you know, I decided to take my time setting up. Joy, a few months ago, bought us a just a nice 12-foot by 12-foot dark green pavilion shade fly. And wow. I love the thing. And so now I have like a little area I can kind of call like my, my little base camp. It's nice to have, though. It's nice to have a place in the shade. So overall, good event. There was a cut and thrust tournament later in the day, and I did sign up for that. Uh, was out a little faster than I wanted to be, but my first opponent was a white scarf and a master of defense. So no guilt there. And uh, my second opponent was a very fascinating gentleman named Kazmir. He was a, a Polish persona, and he came out with a pair of... Uh, Polish style sabers. Wait, so he did a Polish saber. He did a pair of Polish sabers. Well, he had a pair, but he, when doing cut and thrust, he had a Polish saber and he had a dagger with that same upswept uh, saber style blade, except oh, just in dagger form. That'd be mean. And I had my long sword, and uh, I, he was a lot of fun to fight. He was a very nice gentleman, and we double killed three times in a row. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So nobody won that one. <laughs> well, he finally got a semi-glancing, but I'm still going to call it blow on my legs. And in cut and thrust rules, especially because we are doing the cuts and the chops, any shot to the leg is still a kill. Right. So I just decided to call it. One, yeah. because my left side of my ribs were a little sore where I got his head and he got my ribs. <laughs> and then it was clean. So I'm like, yep, that's good. I'm out. You know, and if if somebody gets you... And they get you light because they calibrate. We want to reward that now, don't we? Especially in CNT. Like, I actually had somebody in a tournament. Like, I had placed my blade on their mask. And it wasn't a hard shot. But they were, they were sitting there trying to figure out, like, oh, it was there, but it was light. I'm not sure whether to call it. You know, This is a tournament, so winning gets the better of some people's judgment. So I just looked at him levelly and asked, so what I'm hearing is that you need me to hit you harder in the face. <laughs> he decided to call it after that. Good choice. So after I was done with the fighting and the marshalling, I spent some time with a couple of gentlemen. I had set up my pavilion next to theirs. And one of them had a wooden stump with a cylinder of metal sticking out of it, and it was hammering away on some things. Once I went over to introduce myself and to meet them, found out that they were members of the Onstioran Moneyers Guild, and they were making replicas of period coins. That sounds like too cool. much fun. So after talking with them a bit, I found out that what they had done was made a pair of dies based on 16th century English pennies, one side was a design that was for the, the Roses of Onstiora, 
and a rose is anyone who has been queen before. And so it can be used multiple times. The other side of the die was made specifically for our current queen. Had her initials on it, along with some other decorative um, pieces. That doesn't look out of place on a piece of period money. And their gift to the new crown was one pound of these coins, which the small blanks were made out of aluminum. So that came out to be just a little over 2,000 coins. Jeez. So after talking with them more about period money, I offered to help. And over about the next hour and a half, I was either replacing the, the, the blank and putting the die down for someone to hit it, or I was taking a turn hammering away. And it was really fun. That sounds like a great way to spend a day with some new friends. It yeah. was. Uh, great conversations with them both about fighting, about the SCA, and, of course, more about the research of period money, the way that they replicate today, but do so affordingly because, you know, we're, you can't just go, like, okay, we need a bunch of silver to turn out a bunch of silver coins. Yeah, no, that's prohibitive <laughs> cost-wise. Yeah. You know, they're, they're basically using aluminum. But uh, I also, we talked about what happens if, you know, you want to make some that have a goldish look to them. And there's this uh, stuff called new gold, which is a mix of copper and bronze that has a bit of a nice gold look to it. And by the end of the night, one of them turned to me and goes, oh, by the way, you're now officially part of the Anstuar and Money Years Guild. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, and I got paid. He gave me about 20 of the coins that were made. And in period fashion, I was paid in ones where the, the detail is not so precise or the impressions are off center because I, people who would have worked in money guilds in the past, those are the types that they would have been paid with because the good stuff that goes to the customers, the crown, uh, the banks, whoever has contracted for the money to be made and the employees get the rejects because, you know, it may be a reject slightly off center. Uh, the impression not as good, but it's still silver. Hmm. The it's more you screw gonna, up, it, the more yeah. you take home. It sounds like higher management. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he said, you're now a member of the guild. Your official title is Hammerer. I'm like, okay. He's like, that's an actual position. <laughs> and you actually would have been paid more. I have to ask, have, have you in the SCA, have you, have you made it to the, to the rank of captain? Just asking. No reason. Uh, no relation no, to, the, to the title hammer. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I one day I hope to attain the coveted title of Captain Hammer. It'd just be me and Nathan Fillion. I mean, I had to wish. I had to hope. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'd have to walk around being smarmy. I mean, all the time. And well, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it too much, James. I mean, everyone's a hero in their own way. That's right. <laughs> <sighs> but speaking of a hero in their own way, and this is what I wanted to start my geek out. In fact, I wanted to spend most of my geek out just talking about this. Guys, let's talk about Dune. Yeah, it's okay. You can spend most of my geek out talking about it. I, I think it'll be just fine. <laughs> Good. I walked into this movie with high expectations. I really did. I went ahead and thought, considering all the hype about this, the great trailers and the subject material, Dune, I've got high expectations for you. Dennis Villeneuve, you best rock this. And 
I was not disappointed in yeah. the least. They nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. It's interesting because I walked into this with a different set of of hopes. Like, you know, you want it to be good, but I was I was thinking to myself, okay, you can't burden a director with bringing your imagination to the screen and having them do justice to to what it is that you would you have personally accepted as as your headcanon of the way that things sound and look. But wow, I I have to say that he just dropped the ball in terms of the vision. He took out so much that was pivotal, like the boring dinner scene. And he took out the, well, I, Thufer, how suspect you of being the traitor, Jessica? Oh, you do? I wondered where drunken Idaho got that idea. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not the traitor. <gasps> you're not the traitor. Well, if you're not, the, let me tell you, I'm not the traitor. And I'll prove that th maybe there is no traitor. And that dialogue wasn't there. It just wasn't Dune without all the boring back and forth and i i walked out no none of that is true is it I any wonder it. that i decided to not read the rest of the book <laughs> it, okay i mean the writing style isn't grand but those things work well enough on the page to establish those characters and to establish some of the uh, some of the things that become pivotal later on in the book but they they just and I, i've seen people that got upset like upset that they didn't have the dinner scene and they didn't have the high level suspicion and the intrigue. And I'm like, you can't do that in two and a half hours. The cuts that they made, like granted, you love that in the book, still go ahead and love it in the book. Mm -hmm. But I thought that Villeneuve's cuts were very judicious and were, I mean, he cut all the right things to tell a visual tight story this sounds so familiar didn't we just discuss this very same concept with something else i don't know maybe i just well, we weren't talking wrong. about ender's game before <laughs> <laughs> well good night everybody from brian mike and james <laughs> <laughs> um you know i don't want to compare Peter Jackson and Villeneuve, I mean, because, I mean, they both had had monumental tasks of taking classic works and bringing them to a visual medium. But I think those were very different tasks. And they can both be good for different reasons. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I have to say that I was more impressed with Villeneuve's. This is just my mm. subjective interaction with the work. I was more impressed with Villeneuve's adaptation. Uh, than I was with Peter Jackson's, but I I've had more of a relationship with with Dune than I had with Lord of the Rings when I saw Peter Jackson's vision. Well, I've not seen Peter Jackson's version of Dune yet, so I don't feel like I can make a <laughs> uh, a, a proper judgment. Okay, I know that that was like a, a slip of the tongue in terms of the way that I sentenced my structure, but honest to goodness, Peter Jackson <laughs> had thought about adapting Dune. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. You know. I like him a lot. I, I will always admire him for what he brought in terms of the Lord of the Rings. He's not the right person to do Dune. I mean, we would have had Leto II as a giant sandworm played by Andy Serkis. And can you tell me that's the wrong choice? Actually, I can't. I'm, I've changed my mind completely. I want to see this now. You've won me over, Mike. 
Uh, Jason Momoa is like, wait, how how many movies am I in? Like, quiet, or we will clone you and make them do the movies. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I have to say that really struck me was the attention to detail in terms of all of the analog controls on the ornithopters. Like, there were no computers. I mean, you'd expect everything because of the way that we visually tell stories is that things are high tech, high computer. You have these heads up displays where you're where you're the touch screens that aren't really there. You know, the blue and yellow ones that all superheroes are always touching, but not touching <laughs> and gesticulating in front of. But you literally can't have that in Dune because they weren't allowed to have computers. That's why we have Mentots. And I'm mm -hmm. like, gosh, you never you never explain it. You just show it and let it be and that was yeah. that was really cool i really appreciated the fact that they didn't go through explaining why things were the way they were we didn't need that exposition and it wasn't hard to follow plot wise it just for what you saw you just accepted this is the way things are and i didn't need that it wasn't pivotal to the story we don't need to know about the butlerian jihad I'm actually upset that I know what the Butlerian Jihad is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk for a second about what they added, though. And there were scenes between Paul and Leto and Paul and Duncan Idaho that were not part of the books. But, oh my gosh, I think that they showed the emotional dynamics between Paul and Duncan better than any media before it, including Herbert's work. And uh -huh. I really thought that was fantastic and necessary character building. You get a sense that these are people who have spent so much time around each other, talking, training, working, eating together. These men, Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, they're his uncles. And they act like his uncles. And that, <laughs> yeah. that is evident on the screen. Especially with that comment. Oh, you put on some muscle. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> and something else that I thought was really pretty incredible with the film is like this. The base work of this was was being written in what, the 1950s? It was like 1957 that it came out. Or was it being written then? There's a lot of stuff that Herbert was kind of impressed by Lawrence of Arabia and this other thing, Arabic. And, oh, let's just take the Middle East and copy paste that in there. Now, we won't say that anybody's a particular race and we won't describe anybody's skin colors. So that way we get rid of all the nasty prejudices that I copied and pasted from my preconceptions of other cultures into this book. <laughs> um, but, you know, and they, they say things that we would kind of cringe at, like, you know, like, oh, you've gone native, like, and they kind of kept those things in the book, but they left them as cringy moments. Like somebody said it once uh, Idaho was admiring the Fremen work and they teased him saying, you've gone native. And it was just kind of like a dude that you're not supposed to say that, but they yeah. kind of left it. But as showing the people like, yeah, this was an uncool thing that Leto's people were doing because there were a number of things in the book that even Paul is looking at how his father is conducting the business. Like, Oh dude, that's not cool. And Idaho was saying, yeah, dude, you need to respect these people's culture. And without having long drawn out scenes with that, you could see that these were off worlders kind of superiority complex assessment of the population of the planet. And it's like, 
wow, in a couple of sentences, you showed and not told. To jump back on the interrelation dynamics of Paul and the men around him, and also to the show, not tell, Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the way that they established that there was a loving and solid relationship between Paul and Leto. Oh, man. That was shown again. Yeah. This, do you know what? This entire movie was show, don't tell. Yeah. Which I mean, Dune has struggled with in the past. He, when they're getting ready to leave their home planet to head to Arrakis and the scene where they're around the gravestones of their forefathers and they're having a discussion. One day you're going to be a leader. But what if I don't want to? I'm like, I didn't want to be a leader. I wanted to be a pilot. And just that the line, I don't remember it completely, but, you know, one day you'll be called to lead son. And if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be my son. Like, wow. And and the way he delivered it, the chemistry between those two actors, I had no trouble believing that there was real love between father and son, real affection between them. Yeah. And, And that came out again, the scene where they're on the flyer and they go to rescue the crew from the spice collector and Paul's having a moment and he ends up just sitting there next to a gigantic wheel and they finally get him on board. And you, in one of the most incredible scenes of the movie, you see this giant machine gets swallowed up by a sandworm and they get back to the hangar and his dad dresses him down, but not in a way that shames or embarrasses Paul. He just says, you have to be more careful. You need to be more careful. You are too important. Yeah, and it didn't come across as just you're too important to this family line. I mean, it's like you are too like, yes, he is important as a line of succession, but he's also too important to Leto. And it's like, exactly. Wow. Yeah. And it's funny because this is not usually an emotional story. With emotional works. I mean, in fact, there are several parts in the book like, well, I'm going to suppress this emotion because there's a thing to do. I will feel grief over my father's death when it is time to grieve, which is not now, but I will be setting a time in my day planner uh, after I kill Janus. All right. And Mark. Fantastic. (laughs) I will let the morning pass over me. I must not mourn. Morning is the mind killer. Honestly, like that is part of that's part of his training is that the the Bene Gesserit have said, okay, well, we we can't follow our animal instincts. And Paul has said also with his uh, Mintant training was told to strip these things out to let him calculate when he needs to. So his son is killed. Sorry, spoilers for anybody who hasn't read this book that was out in like the 50s. When his son is killed, he just kind of shuts that part down. So he can tend to business and say, well, you know, I'll mourn my son when I can mourn my son. Um, So these aren't in their source material, emotional characters, yet they they have in the movie created these amazing emotional anchor points. And I thought that was so well done. Agreed. And it's like not that the movie is an amazing tour of feelings, but Mm -hmm. it at least creates relatable characters and relatable moments Mm -hmm. better than its previous forms of media. I really enjoyed the balance between the characterization, the beautiful effects, and the music. The music was so good. Mike, I think you told me you saw this in a drive-in. Yeah, I did not exactly get the surround sound unless that was a a single speaker uh, FM radio surround sound system, (laughs) which it was not. 
Oh, so you heard it as God intended. That's the way you know, it's supposed to be heard. I um, had it sitting on the roof of my car as I was sitting in a camp chair huddled in a blanket. Nice. I saw it in like a THX theater and it's so good. I hear the music is like in you. It's so Hans Zimmer is the composer. Yeah. And he is also a huge fan of Dune. And I read that he actually turned down working with Christopher Nolan on Tenant to score this film. I'm kind of glad he did. Same. There was one aspect of the music, though, that did annoy me. At various parts, you would hear a female's voice give a high-pitched chant or call, and it was very loud, and they used it way too often. The Harkonnens are invading. You hear her scream. Ships are lifting off. You hear her scream. Uh, Duncan Idaho comes out of the bathroom. You hear her scream. <laughs> like really odd placement of these. It's a very strange scene to include in the movie, too. Yeah. Also, that was my thought. Walks out drying his hands. You hear the space flush of the space toilet. And <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. No, you do not do that on Arrakis. They think, You're right. Like, just wasting water. Yeah. They like. I'm not the, the three seashells. I don't know. We're moving past that. <laughs> he just really doesn't like the still suits. Uh, I am so glad nobody has done like a detailed breakdown of how those work because, you know, like surface reading, fine. Think about it any more than that. It's just creepy. Moving on. So, uh, yeah, Mike and I loved Dune and. Uh, the highest praise that I can give a movie, honestly, is wanting to go see it again in theaters, being willing to pay full price mm -hmm. just to see it a second time or maybe a $5 matinee. But that's how much I enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. I drove an hour to go see this at a drive-in and have like zero regrets. So, yeah, I'm interested as to what they're going to do with the second film because that's a that's a tone shift in the book. I mean, that is a hard tone shift i was really bummed to find out that the second movie hadn't been greenlit yet now i that's actually traditional they're not going to make a sequel unless the first one does well but i'm so used to like when a book has been split into two different movies they shoot it all together release one one year release the sequel the next i thought that's what we were going to be getting and i'm just glad that it's doing as well as it is yeah, I, I'm glad that it got greenlit. Um, Villeneuve said that he was he wanted to do it all at once, but they just didn't authorize enough money to do it until they could see that it was actually going to perform. Because I mean, Dune has had some problems in the past. Like it's, <laughs> it, it's I, it. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, if you don't, that's okay. Wait a minute. What is our main topic? Bad movies we love? Anyway, okay, moving <laughs> you know, we're, we're, Hey, We could talk about Dune twice this week. Awesome. <laughs> but we're going to not. Moving on. Sorry that our, uh, our geek outs. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. I'm happy when our geek outs overlap. Unless there was anything else we wanted to say on Dune. Mike, what else have you been geeking out to? I watched Dune. I've been geeking out to that hard for weeks. <laughs> Same. It's been... It's been a pretty geek light month, and also I wanted to save time for us to, to talk about Dune. Uh, but uh, one thing that's been pretty happy for me is that I've been playing a Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game, and mm. I'm not GMing. Hooray! Um, no, I do love GMing, but it's also nice to play. 
And somebody who GM'd for me years ago has decided that he really wanted some time to sit down and roll dice. And he he was saying that, you know, the, the Saga Edition D20 version of Star Wars is not the best role-playing game, but it's one that he knows. And can we not be so so particular to exactly how the rules work and use it as a structure to do theater of the mind sort of things. And this is usually a very minis and maps oriented game. And we all just kind of said, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this with less pressure and less prep and do it theater of the mind and do it every other week for two hour sessions, which is really kind of tight. You know, at first I was wondering how this was going to go, but when everybody knows that they've only got two hours, I mean, well, first let's face it. If you have a four hour game session scheduled at best, you're only getting three hours of game time. Like there's at least an hour that's set up in chit chat and, Oh, what's this? Or let's all stop and get a snack and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. People are committed to, to running this tight. Yeah. There is moments for character interaction, and sometimes we've kind of said this in an, in an email, like, hey, my character has this on his mind, but I don't want to eat up too much game time for this. OOC, I'm open to X or Y or Z. My character is, is going to have some tunnel vision on A. All you need to do is just have the conversation to, to steer this elsewhere. You know, that, that's just where my character is, but I don't want to get in the way of the game. And it's been it's been good running it like that because it's fun it's tight and it's it's just a time to roll dice with friends and we're really enjoying it and kasha's playing too so that's fun <laughs> can you give us any quick details about the setting of the campaign it's star wars what else does know from there lightsabers vroom vroom slip slash pew pew i mean the normal stuff no um <laughs> it's sad though that in all honesty you just described the plot of every movie <sighs> I mean, with the exception yeah. of Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> what it is, is it's set around the time of Knights of the Old Republic. So we don't have too much canon to bump into. And the idea is that the, the Jedi-Sith War has just ended. And so, uh, sorry, no, it's the Jedi-Mandalorian War that's just ended. And so the Sith are around, but they're not a prevailing entity in the universe. But... Uh, the Jedi have been hit so hard between the wars uh, recently that they're they're a structure, but they don't have the resources to dump into everything. So we're a couple of upstart Jedi, and I'm playing somebody who is just basically staff at the academy. And they said, well, we've got this mission. It should be a bloom milk run. It's just a no-brainer mission. The four of you go on it. And so we do. Just a couple of level one Jedi and a computer mechanic go along to look into a distress call. And of course, it balloons into, well, there's the Sith. And look, one of the Sith has captured one of our folks. Oh, look, we've captured one of the Sith. We've got to go after our friend. No, we can't go after our friend. They're in hyperspace. But Ohana means family and family means no one gets left behind. Like we can't do that. <laughs> Which I actually said in the middle of I had an argument with one of the other PCs like, well, we can't. And I'm like, no. And I dropped the Lilo and Stitch right there. <laughs> and the GM had never seen it. So he's like, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> so they had to explain <laughs> what I was talking about. I'm now imagining Stitch with four red lightsabers. Dark Lord of the Stitch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that, but it was so worth it. <laughs>
Because I'm sorry, he would completely be a Sith. <laughs> I mean, at least at heartbeat. first. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's just great to to be able to to have a little bit of time to roll dice with friends, especially since one of those friends has moved to England and he can still get onto Zoom. That's also grand. Very cool. So that wraps it up for me. How about you, Brian? Well, I have also been enjoying getting to play instead of GM. I've talked about being in Peter Martin's uh, group for a while. And I believe last time, I don't, last time or the time before, I had mentioned that we were going to be starting Monster of the Week. And James said he was so jealous. And we have parlayed that jealousy into James joining that group. Uh, and I got to say, your Sam Elliott impersonation is so good. <laughs> Thank you. That every time it's my turn to talk after you've been talking, I try to fall into your accent. I'm like, no, that's not my character. <laughs> I'm playing somebody, somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I joined the group's Discord and we were talking about what we want our characters to look like. And suddenly the other players were sending me pictures of classic old tough guy actors. Somehow it ended up on Sam Elliott. And I'm like, nope, that's the one right there. <laughs> Partially because someone had recommended that I finally give the man who killed Hitler and then Bigfoot, a try. This is an actual movie on, I don't remember if it's on Netflix or Hulu. Actually, it's, no, it's on Hulu. You know what? I can't say anything about it. It has to be experienced. So just go check it out yourself. For the most part, you won't be disappointed. You're just kind of, you're going to go in with one expectation and you're going to find that you, <laughs> you've experienced something else completely different. Anyway, so that's been... Uh... A really good experience. We've only had one session so far because we're all adults with weird lives that keep throwing things in our way. But uh, I'm really looking forward to finishing out that first uh, scenario and starting on the next one. And if I can jump on that one more time, Brian, I have to Go say right I, I have done game brainstorming sessions before. I don't think I've ever enjoyed one as much as I did with you and the other players. What was happening that night was everyone just throwing out ideas and things we came up with. It was just magic. Yeah, they're a fantastic crew, very creative and very, very generous. I, mm -hmm. I like that a lot about them. And so enthusiastic and supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. Man, I just, I'm so happy that we can hang out online and do this, but I want you all over at my house. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. On a related note, I'm also playing in another game. It's a, it's a one-shot, but uh, Jeff Romo invited me to play Call of Cthulhu. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. And he is... I've listened to Romo GM before for uh, The Glass Dagger and a couple of other one-shots. Um, and he's just fantastic. And he is just as good, you know... I really don't think, like, Glass Dagger, it's not edited at all. It's just he's that on the ball. He's really, really fantastic. And we're playing this... Uh, the 19, late 1920s or early 30s um, in Soviet Russia. And we're all NKVD agents investigating a farm. Its production has fallen. So we're all having a lot of fun doing our uh, outrageous Russian accents and uh, oppressing the proletariat. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> that quiet menace, you know. Oh, yes, comrade. If that is what the decision that you think you ought to make, then by all means, go ahead. Um, but I, that's, I think we're having our second session next week. In fact, um, that should, 
should finish that one out. And I'm really, 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 really looking forward to it. Yeah, that uh, sounds really amazing. Yeah, it it really is. Um, and I hope I get the opportunity to play in one of his games again in the future. Just he's he's really good. <laughs> and it's been inspiring to me as a game master to to play with other game masters who are that skilled, picking up some some techniques and some approaches. And I've 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 learned a lot from it's we've only been a total of like two and a half, three hours, but I, I absorbed so much in that short time and in the, the lead up to it because he's he's got a way of uh building excitement with just like dropping a prompt or uh an image in our our group chat uh, every few days you know just to keep people's attention focused and uh, get their excitement up yeah that's one of the the exciting things about being a gm who also likes to play in other people's groups is just seeing what do other gms do well and some of it is you don't have to emulate it. I mean, I'm I'm mm-hmm. never going to have you know, the complex storylines that Will is going to have. Like he seems to know how to keep a universe, keep its clockwork ticking while you're following one one set of mechanics and the rest of the universe keeps on ticking. Like nothing ever gets put on hold or on pause. Everything is still interacting in Adventure Time. And yet, you know, there's things that when he plays in some of my games, he sees that I'm bringing something else to the table in terms of environments and characterization that he's like, wow, that works really well. Neither one of us are ever going to even be able to try to emulate the other person. Mm -hmm. But you can still just really appreciate when you have when you have somebody who's such a good GM that you just really enjoy sitting in the worlds that they're that they're making and you know the presence that they're bringing to the table it's just amazing yeah and if you do see something that you can emulate that yeah by all means try and take that for your own games there's it's like there's no reason to turn down a good tool if you see it right right you're not gonna wield it in quite the same way as that other game master does but that doesn't mean that uh it's not also valuable in your hands fair enough on the non-role-playing side uh Actually, no, it's just another role-playing game. I'm started playing a new world. <laughs> and, you know, like all MMOs, it's less role-playing than it is, you know, just hack and slash kind of stuff. It's it's difficult to play a character when, you know, it's a computer game, and so everything is pretty constrained. I went in with this idea I was going to be this this cleric type, and it's going to level up the life staff and, and wear these these robes, and my, my character's got a tonsure. But it's like, no, you you can't really do the cleric thing. You can be a healer, and but you're still going out and you're bonking monsters on the head with a big hammer at some point. <laughs> See, that was uh, that's always one of the things that's always kind of frustrated me about wanting to play like a magic user class. Like I get that there's divine magic and that there's arcane magic, but I've never found anything that lets me study the magic of friendship. But, you know. <laughs> well, you're just playing the wrong games. I'm sure that there's a MLP game out there somewhere. By golly, I think there is. I'm sure there is. <laughs> uh, anyway, but I've got my buddy Christian. Uh, actually, he was the one who who prompted me to install it and, and start playing. Uh, so once a week, we gather a little crew together and go out and kill wolves and gather hemp so that we can make linen. There's a really uh, broad crafting system in the game that I've been enjoying quite a bit, probably more than I enjoy the actual you know storyline. No, no, I need to go out and I need to find iron and silver so that I can make rapiers. 
I, I don't know where you're going with this, but I am so on board right now. Yep, that's all. That's I wasn't going anywhere. The end point was making rapiers. Considering how much time I spent just crafting in Skyrim and The Witcher 3, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Animal Crossing lately, so I have a zero room to judge. <laughs> Imagine if we combined all of these games together and we called it Dragon Crossing. And that's the, what the whole game is. You just make yourself a little shack, level up your alchemist levels, make daggers and rapiers and magic items to sell to adventurers. And, and that's the game. You, you <laughs> report into the back and Isabel gives you combat missions. Yeah, I see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> the dreaded dragon of Loch Nan has been terrorizing the countryside. And all you're thinking is like, I can get so many spellcrafting components from that thing. <laughs> As if you don't do that in normal role-playing games. That's beside the point. I, I seem to recall that uh, dragon you killed in my Rifts game, and you're all trying to figure out, okay, how do we transport its corpse to the town so that we can harvest it for alchemy supplies? And it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took three weeks. It was a horrid, rotting mess and putrid by the time we got there. But oh my gosh, the alchemy. <laughs> well, it was, the, it was the stripping down of all of our vehicles to make a large hover sled. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's not lying. It's basically what we did. We basically ruined our transportation just to transport this thing. <laughs> because, I mean, forget the alchemy. Basically, we were looking at this thing. There was just a giant dollar sign attached to the side of this monster. That's It was all about the cash. The monster that was supposed to be a tough fight. And when it turned out it wasn't being a tough fight, it tried to run away and couldn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've, uh, I've GM'd that adventure before. <laughs> I have GM'd that adventure many, many, many times. More than a few with me. Yes. <laughs> In that same Rift game, actually. And the uh, Middle Earth role-playing where I had my assassin that I was... I actually had theme music for, and oh, she yeah. lasted like three turns. <laughs> Is that the one I murdered in Code Blood on stage? No, no, that was okay. that was earlier. It was the one that you captured. And uh, no matter what I tried to do to, to try and get her to escape, it just wasn't happening. She's like, ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> so what was I talking about? I was talking about New World, but I was done talking about New World. I'd said all I had to say about it, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, we started talking about game mastering styles. Right. And I mean, I think that's how <laughs> our better conversations tend to go, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I guess I could talk about, uh, I'm about to start uh, Traveler. Oh my, my gosh, group. that sounds Get, great. Getting all of the stuff put into Roll20. Roll20 has a category for, it says Traveler, any edition, but I wish it had said Traveler, every edition. Mm. Because I'm taking pieces of like six different editions of Traveler and smashing them together. And also like some Cyberpunk Red and uh, even a little bit from Tales from the Loop. Oh, wow. So what's the premise be, of this one? Uh, it's going to be a say? pretty... A pretty standard uh, Traveler game. It, with Traveler, it's always hard to say, this is what we're going to do, because you never know what the characters are going to be. Right. Um, because so much of it is randomly generated. And the only thing that I really know is they're going to muster out on Regina, and then... Will they have a ship? I don't know. If they do, what are they going to do with it? I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, will they have pants? We don't know. Maybe it'll be killed. <laughs> Roll for pants. 
Uh, oh, my last roll for shoes game was fantastic too. Uh, I did a, a little Halloween scenario. Oh my gosh! Uh, Do tell. It was set in a uh, a kind of a fictional analog of Hex Hollow, and then they were uh, teenagers legend tripping. So they were going to drive. The legend was that you drive across each of the bridges in Nelson's Hollow exactly one time, and you open a gate to hell. Okay. So they get about halfway through, and then they run across a an old mansion that wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't on any of the maps. And so like, okay, well, let's examine the mansion. And uh, of course, there were ghosts in the mansion. And one of the players was murdered by a ghost that was trying to murder another ghost. And then they overturned like the big china cabinet on one of them to, to try and trap it. And somebody set a fire that actually caught the, the guy that had been stabbed, caught his coat on fire. And so the whole mansion is starting to go up in flames and someone tries to cross the uh, China cabinet and goes through the back of it and gets his foot stuck. So we had one character murdered by ghosts, one character burned alive, and the third gets up to the car in the, the sleeting darkness and realizes that the guy who got his foot caught in the China cabinet still has the keys in oh, his pocket. No. And That's... so we, we end with uh, him walking off into the darkness, looking for the rest of the bridges so that he can go to hell and rescue his friends. Oh my gosh, that is like such a Halloween movie. Yes, it <laughs> You was. know what I mean? Yeah, it was a terrific game. And being able to get two PC kills in a game of Roll for Shoes is pretty impressive too. That is impressive. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew that we could die, but I don't remember how we took damage and what our what our what determined whether we were hurt or alive or anything of that sort. Yeah, there's not actually much in the way of mechanics for that in Roll for Shoes. Um, I think in the sci-fi game that you played in, I didn't even have any of that thought out. Um, it was just, if you encounter something that's probably going to kill you, then roll to see if you can get out of it. And if it doesn't, you die. That makes sense. And if you die, then, you know, you roll for cheat death. <laughs> That was, I think, my favorite <laughs> favorite mechanic <laughs> ever. Cheat death. Uh, I think that cheat death and examine dead body were <laughs> the skills <laughs> right. that I'm going to remember. Uh, I did have one. I did run one of them where the PCs actually had hit points. Okay. Uh, it was kind of a, a standard dungeon crawler. And I, I structured it in such a way that every time the PCs made a roll, I was also rolling for the goblin of the woods mm. and you know so he was leveling up at the same time they were and he was getting abilities like getting minions and so forth that he would then throw in their way and i did give them hit points for that one kind of makes yeah. sense but they survived it and killed the goblin well no they didn't kill the goblin they drove the goblin off it got away i'll but count that as a victory villagers. sounds like a win to me yep and that wraps it up for my extra long geek out but moving on, what's our topic for today, guys? I haven't been paying any attention. <laughs> uh, I think that we have decided to take a, a hard look, a deep dive, probably more at ourselves than anything with bad movies we love. Yeah, I think that this is going to be more a big reveal of exactly either how good or how bad our movie taste is. Well, I mean, I guess it really begs the question, like, why are we bothering to talk about movies or things at all that we know aren't good. Well, uh, quality is overrated. I mean, films are about emotions. Um, and sometimes there's a movie that's objectively awful that still is touching something in us. And 
sure, a lot of times that's nostalgia, as I'm sure we'll see in our selections. But it's not always that. And sometimes it's just like there is something about this, like there are ridiculous things that will bring me to tears just because, hey, that that's hitting something in my psyche that, you know, is possibly something that I need to work through <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> maybe just, hey, I needed this uh, little bit of catharsis right now. And if I'm getting it from, I don't know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but the end of Kiki's delivery that, service. And don't you judge me for tearing up just a little bit every time? <laughs> oh, dang, I couldn't possibly judge you for that. I mean, okay. if you want some judgment, there is an episode of Bobby's World that gets me. So there you go. I've admitted that on the air. <laughs> I mean, I think that we can all be secure in ourselves enough to say exactly that. Yeah, there is sometimes emotional catharsis or something that this that some films. I'm not saying that Kiki's Delivery Service is a bad film, um, but no, for some not. reason, there's an emotional reaction every single time. And I think it's I think it's funny because sometimes like you usually expect yourself to desensitize to some pieces of media. But sometimes that just does not happen. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I think that we we should probably give some voice to the fact that the things it, it's hard to love something that is just one hundred percent garbage. So these movies have to have something that's redeemable. So what is it that makes the difference between something that's just bad and watchably, lovably bad? One thing to me is that I think that there's at least enough structure there to let you enjoy and appreciate what's there, even while still affectionately roasting what doesn't go well. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to do a deep dive on it, but I think Attack of the Killer Shrews has some impeccable structure for a 1950s horror film while being thoroughly cheesy enough to make it comedic and not the least bit scary. At yeah, first, I, think... I thought you misspelled Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Because I had never heard of Attack of the Killer Shrews. Oh my gosh! It's it's again. It's it. It used to be like a, a Halloween regular, because yes, it's a scary monster movie. These are dogs with rugs and paper mache. Um, <laughs> but again, it's got the horror movie structure. It's it's a scary movie, but it's not scary. And I, I think that structure for that film is one thing that makes it good. And also the fact that you can appreciate what what it should do, but it never manages to get there. So you like it in kind of the, you know, he's he's my dopey step cousin. But don't you dare talk bad about my dopey step cousin. <laughs> so what else makes something that's bad, but watchably bad? Or do you guys have anything on that? I think it depends on the individual. It's like trying to define mm. what is good. It depends on the person, but it also depends on where they're at emotionally at the time that they view it. That can determine if it's something that they watch and they just forget about or if it's something they connect with. Hmm. Uh, like like you in the end of Kiki's Delivery Service, like Brian in that episode of Bobby's World, feelings and emotions. Movies are meant to connect with us using those, at least the good movies, but also sometimes the bad movies. And you never know what's what's going to hit you square in the heart or square in the funny bone. And you can't explain it. And sometimes it doesn't need to be explained. Just because you find enjoyment and fulfillment in something doesn't mean that you have to figure it out. Sometimes yeah. you just enjoy it. 
You know, it's funny because I had a similar thought when I was listening to, I mean, we can say the name Retro Rewind on this podcast without getting into trouble, right? I mean, we've done that before. <laughs> I should um, hope so. <laughs> I, I think we owe them a nickel every time we do. <laughs> I was listening yeah. to their, their review of Star Wars Episode Two, and everything that they said was bad about the film and everything they said was a tragic maker. I'm like, yeah, agree. Agree agree when it came down to the final ratings and i'm sitting there to myself thinking yeah nostalgic and like tragic and i'm like really but without being able to disagree with any one of their points i think you're right it's, it's subjectively what do you bring to the table as to whether or not recognizing its faults you happen to view things through a particular lens or not and i'm just shocked at myself that i didn't think of attack of the clones when we were planning this episode out <laughs> is that to you as like one of the quintessentially enjoyable bad movies uh about half of it is an enjoyable bad movie the other half needs to be cut out but there's certainly there's things like going back and watching re-watching the prequel trilogy after having seen the entire nine episode saga i actually do appreciate you know episodes one and two a lot more now than i did when when they mm. came out and it's not like, hey, I'm going to throw on Attack of the Clones because, you know, that's my idea of a good time today. But, you know, if I'm watching Star Wars, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll watch the prequel trilogy again. And honestly, all of the Obi-Wan stuff in that movie is fantastic. I love it. I could do without just about everything with Anakin in it. But the Obi-Wan stuff is good. I like it. I've got some really good news about Disney Plus in the very near future. <laughs> yes, I am looking forward to that one. Same. All right, let's... Let's get into some of our just prime examples. You see what I did there? Of <laughs> didn't mean to do that. Well done. Wow. It was an accident, even, but it was true. I'm a dad. I make bad puns. Even I rolled my eyes on that one. The thing is, the audience doesn't see the notes. They don't know that my example of my prime example of a bad movie that I love is the 1986. The Transformers, the movie. I shamelessly love this shiny piece of hot garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess the question is, what's what's wrong with it? I mean, on the surface, it's just a two-hour toy commercial to launch Generation 2 of a new product line. If you dig just a little bit deeper, you find a two-hour toy commercial just to launch Generation 2 of a new product <laughs> line. Mm-hmm. It has this weird sagging middle act that feels largely driven by the need to introduce more characters. There's and gosh, one thing that I, I think would have been. Can we just so, substitute the word characters with uh, toys? I mean, <laughs> you're not wrong. There was just this staggering lack of understanding of children's psychology as the writers mercilessly murdered characters that children had created emotional bonds with through play. Uh, and there is so much that happens with children in their play. And it was just a gut punch. Like I sobbed in the theaters when mm -hmm. Optimus Prime died. Yep. It was 1986 that I lost my innocence because <laughs> I had never seen essential hero in a cartoon die before that that concept was completely foreign and here they kill like the biggest hero of the time optimus prime 
Now, that was my model of virtue. Like if, if I had if I had read Aristotle at that point, like when, when you say to Aristotle, well, how do I live virtuously? And he says, you find a virtuous man and you live like that. Like, let's let's take out the word man and put in the word Autobot. And I have my choice. I think that there were a lot of things that they could have done. That would have been bold storytelling if the writers had a modicum of awareness as to what they were doing. <laughs> and they've gone on the record saying something to the effect of 20 years later, look, I, I thought I was just selling toys. Never in a million years would I have thought that I would be standing here at a con panel answering the question yet again, over and over again, why did I kill off Optimus Prime? <laughs> I'm still stuck on Aristotle bot. Um, <laughs> wishing to be friends is quick work but friends roll out oh my gosh <laughs> wow <sighs> i don't think that i've i'd seen uh all of it since the theater i did watch a, a little bit yesterday you know to see do my memories match up to what i remember <laughs> does the reality match up to my memories anyway uh, but I remember in the weeks, uh, you know, before it was coming out, they were doing a lot of a lot of promotion. I was tremendously excited about it. And uh, in the weeks afterward, I was crushed that I couldn't play with Optimus Prime anymore. Yeah, because he's dead now. He's dead. You know, what are you supposed to do with the toy? Bury him in the backyard? Right. Jeez. Oh, wow. And being extremely jealous of my friend who already had a Rodimus Prime figure. So, yeah, toy commercial. That was very effective, obviously. Although I was upset because I had an Optimus, too. I'm like, well, I guess I'll get Rodimus. And then I saw what the Rodimus action figure looked like. And it was such a giant piece of orange plastic crap. Yeah. Hot Rod was so much better. Mm. I loved that Hot Rod toy. I didn't care if he wasn't the leader. Hot Rod was just was awesome design. And he was fun. to. Do you know what I think? That's one of the things that was great about these toys is that they had a real tactile component. Oh, like yeah. it was almost like puzzle solving. Like this is... It's almost like it's designed to excite so many good things <laughs> in children's interaction and learning. But man, if, it's, it's in my experience, it was designed to make me think that my parents were idiots because <laughs> they could not transform the robots. I could do it like five seconds. It's just, it's just like this. And my dad looks at the things like moves some things around. It's like, I don't understand this at all. <laughs> though that's the sort of things that uh, the that's the sort of power dynamic that children revel in as yeah. they have secret knowledge that the adults cannot tap into and there was much of that that was being portrayed in 80s and early 90s media i mean yeah. even will smith told us parents just don't understand yeah i mean well yes <laughs> but also the story of the oh gosh i think it was the polar express where the kid asked for the bell from Santa's sleigh and he gets it and his parents couldn't hear the bell and he could in time in time his sister couldn't hear the bell. Uh, you grow up enough. You can't go to Narnia. I mean, it, there is something in that in that actual tangible thing that the children have something that the adults don't have. That was just magic. And so you have to murder that magic on the big screen. Good. Right. Good. Good job, yeah. guys. Good job. <laughs> I guess the question, why do, why do I love this film? And honestly, there's a lot that's just nostalgia. But if we're talking about what's what's actual quality in this, 
I really think that the background artists were taking this film a lot more seriously than literally anyone else. And I, I don't mean that. I mean, I could say that as a dig. And sometimes I do say that as a dig. But <laughs> in all honesty, they have some wonderfully rich and beautiful backgrounds. And I've even listened to the DVD audio commentary. And these people were taking their craft as background artists very seriously. And it was it was great. Well, whenever I'm tempted to completely pan something, I remind myself that no matter how awful something is, it's somebody's baby. Somebody is pouring mm. their their blood, sweat, and tears into any creative work, even if it's something as crassly commercial as Transformers the movie. And I remember, you know, like I said, I only saw it the one time, but I have these vivid memories of Unicron and Cybertron and the Matrix of Leadership sequence at the end because they were a lot more detailed. They were a lot, mm -hmm. I guess, denser in detail than, you know, all of the Transformers TV show that I'd seen up to that point. I can um, remember thinking, seeing the detail and thinking, why can't the cartoons be like this all the time? What's the matter with these people? <laughs> Gosh, yeah, budget. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I did look it up. I was while I was writing that in the in the notes, I looked it up, looked up the movie. It's the whole thing is on uh, YouTube uh, just to see, OK, am I remembering right that this Cybertron and Unicron were, were really detailed? And I looked it up like, wow, yeah, Unicron's uh, transformation sequence, you know, all the little moving parts and the wires and the pistons and everything. It's like, wow, that was a lot of really detailed and very well done animation. Yeah, the film is uneven in that respect. Like there are there are scenes where obviously they were rushing and you can see quality drop between scenes. But where it's done well, it's done really well. Like I mm. I one time sat down to watch this and my eldest loves watching this film with me. And she always had a real love for art, even when she was younger. And there were times that we would just sit there and pause the film so we could talk about use of light and shading. And, you know, I, I think that that was a window of of such opportunity to talk to a young person about art and how these things function in a piece of media like this. Mm. I like also, let's be honest, the, the music was some of the was like a tour of the best of rock of 1986. Does it have anything to do with Transformers? No. But there you go. 1986 <laughs> rock right there. It let it, you let everyone know you've got the touch. Oh, that you've had me in stitches. Power. I was watching that, that sequence. I'm like, oh, I've forgotten that song. And it's so over the top. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll tell you, one time we were sitting there with a there was a faculty member at our school and he was just the right age. We're s sitting there trying to get a copier working again. And he was like, oh, wait a minute. I'll bet you it's this. And he you know, changes a thing, puts the toner back in, is able to close it and it powers up. And I said, somebody call Stan Bush because you got the touch. And he's like, <laughs> like three people just stopped and the faculty member just puts his hand in his head in his hands like i am ashamed that i got that <laughs> <laughs> so what are the moments in the film that that grab your attention the most still i think actually some of the dialogue between rc and hot rod for some reason just jump out at me there's this thing where he's all filled with bravado and he's like, oh, I wasn't scared for a microsecond. She just looks at me like, well, you probably didn't understand the situation. Like, <laughs> burn. Like, that's, and I have just 
tucked that line away into into the recesses of my brain for for, for appropriate usage when the time when, when <laughs> such the time comes. That makes um, me think she must have been a Call of Cthulhu player then. <laughs> wow. For those uh, who don't know, there's a mechanic there where if you see something extremely scary, you you do a sanity check, and uh, if you fail that, then you have to do a an intelligence check. And the smarter you are, the harder it is to succeed at the intelligence check, because if you succeed at it, you understand what's happening and you become a gibbering idiot because this can't be happening. But if you're stupid, then it just goes on right on by and you don't lose the sanity. Wow. Uh, I think that there are some scenes that are that are just beautiful in terms of lighting. Opening the Matrix is mm -hmm. when you've got the music going. It certainly creates an emotional moment. It's over the top and it's cheesy, but it's there. Um, but it's also beautifully lit. And I also, for some reason, the the, the scene that stands out to me is when uh, Megatron is tearing into an Autobot shuttle and it's just one quick firefight. It doesn't matter how many laser blasts they've all taken in the past just shoot these people a few times and the laser blasts go right through them and your your favorite toy is dead mm -hmm. um just the callousness of that scene always jumps out at me and i'm like you know again i think it was one of those things like if you understood what you were doing i would think that was bold but Megatron, you don't they looked at their blasters and were like do you guys know these things had dials on them <laughs> <laughs> We've been setting all the time. We, we've been on setting two all the time. How high does it go up for this scene? Eleven. <laughs> and away we go. But next season they're going to push it back down to four. I, do you know what? I also think that Leonard Nimoy's performance is is actually pretty decent in the film. In in a few scenes, like sometimes he's you know he's he's going as he's directed and it's cartoony and it's over the top. But the moment when, you know, Starscream looks at Galvatron and says, you know, Megatron, is that you? And just the line, here's a hint, is just, it just has the just enough cold malice to it that I'm like, well, Nimoy, I'm glad that you're a part of this. You, you're different than <laughs> Spock. You can act. <laughs> Speaking of interesting performances, one that stood out to me was the transformation scene of Megatron and Unicron. We've already seen Unicron snack on one planet of intelligent robotic species, which kind of sets the stage for him. And he's coming along and he you know, finds Megatron and the rest of the Decepticons that have been tossed aside. Is it kind of sad that this was Orson Welles' last performance? Yeah. <laughs> but there was a gravity to his voice. Yeah. Of this giant creature that literally creates its own gravity. Yeah. Um, this depth of this thing is giant. This thing is old and it is more powerful than anything we've seen on screen in this universe. And the voice conveyed that. Yeah. And up until now, the big bad, the big bad, the big evil has always been Megatron. And now here's something that. Megatron is like an ant to him. Yeah. The bargaining is like Me Megatron bows to no one and just puts Megatron in his place. Just <laughs> swats him aside like he's absolutely nothing. 
and just with a thought transforms him into an even more powerful Decepticon. The animation's beautiful. The whole scene where he's like Megatron is digitized. You see his internals and he's turned into Galvatron and the rest of the Decepticons are changed as well. Yeah, one of the most enjoyable scenes to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that they did bring in such hard-hitting voices for this film. Like, they didn't have to go to... When I was however old I was, I wasn't going to that film to see Orson Welles. I had no idea who he was. (laughs) Uh, But somebody cared enough to bring that to the screen. I mean, they already had Frank Welker, who who is one of the best voice actors in television um, and movies. If you if you think that you've never heard Frank Welker, you're wrong. Just mm-hmm. if you go to Frank Welker, play the Frank Welker drinking game. Um, you take a shot every time you recognize a character he's voiced. And if you make it to 1986 and have not died of alcohol poisoning, you win. Because <laughs> uh, the guy's just so talented, he's done everything. But still, they brought in like huge big name actors to do this and it's kind of an incredible choice no to our listeners geek at arms does not endorse excessive drinking any damage done to your cerebrum or liver by excessive alcohol intake will not be compensated by us in any way shape or form i've just said if you do this you will die that's not an endorsement (laughs) (laughs) local geeks die after drinking too much alcohol after watching one season of transformers (laughs) blame local podcast (laughs) I think we're a very non-local podcast, aren't we? We're coast to coast and deep in the heart of Texas. Everywhere's local for us. That's right. <laughs> but moving on. Yeah, so that's that's my pick. I had a really hard time thinking up of movies for this subject. Either that says that my taste in movies is really good and uh, I have a you know very high sense of, of quality, or it's really, really bad and everyone's just humoring me. <laughs> Well, list off some titles that you really love, and we'll tell you how awful they are. No problem. Uh, Crawl. Oh, okay. You know, (laughs) man, you went right for the jugular. I I just envisioned that rat in one of the the teasers for Ratatouille as he's eating the garbage. He says, you know, if you just push past the gag reflex, all kinds of flavors open up to you. (laughs) It's good to know what Mike really thinks about me now. (laughs) Although, to be honest, I've really wanted to rewatch that film in particular because I enjoyed it when I was young, but I know like it's supposed to be bad. And, you know, love is the answer all along. But anyway, moving on. We can't we can't do this now. But speaking of gag reflex, a movie that I did think of, which some people love, some people just don't care about it at all. And that's Tremors. Oh, my gosh. Came out in 1990. And I can't count how many times I've watched this movie. Back when we felt that we were lucky to actually have cable. You remember (laughs) those days, gentlemen? Anytime Tremors came on the USA Network, which seemed like (laughs) it was at least four times a week. Of course. If I found it, I was going to watch it. That was the rule. Like, if I find Tremors, I'm watching Tremors. Because it was just so entertaining. I mean, it's a wonderful throwback to the classic monster thrillers of the 1950s, like Creature of the Black Lagoon and so many more. It's it's a comedy thriller, but it just was so enjoyable. It was a horror movie without being overly gory, and I could go on and on about it. 
one thing I I liked, I think that kept me coming back, and I think brings so many people back, is that it's a refreshingly honest movie. Yeah, everyone plays their parts in this so earnestly, and I don't know how big of a star Kevin Bacon was in 1990. He'd had some hits, but he was so good in this movie. Everyone was really good. <laughs> Reba McIntyre, what? Wait, why? Why is I don't know why she's in this movie, but I really enjoyed her. She was gold. <laughs> I mean, still, I think so many people's favorite scene in this entire movie is where the monster invades Reba and her husband's basement, and they find that their recreation room is basically just a giant wall filled with guns. <laughs> it's an armory. Yes. I remember watching this movie with my dad, and he's not a big movie watcher, but that scene, it, it made him laugh. And when Bert breaks <laughs> open the glass case with the elephant gun, yes, he, he was dying. He's like, hey, that'll do it. I'm like, well, what is that? And he told me later, like, that's an elephant gun. In case an elephant tries to mug you in the street. Yeah. <laughs> On a side note, because we talked about Monster of the Week earlier, my character in that game is partially based on the character of Burt Grummer from this movie. It burst into the wrong Goldarn rec room. Exactly. I have to admit, I've never actually seen Tremors all the way through. I've seen just oh clips. I saw, I think, Tremors 3. Whoa, I have not even done that. <laughs> oh, there have been, I think, five of them. And something and like that a tv show i you know i can't speak for where the rest of the franchise went but this film is remarkably unpretentious and honest with what it is like it's it was a love note to the 1950s horror flicks you know the yeah. the blog the the, uh, the blog <laughs> attack of the blog oh. that's a modern horror movie attack of the blog <laughs> the blob you know the you know the tweeter <laughs> i'm imagining this kaiju bird just stomping through <laughs> new york now uh that i mean here it's these... evil called <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, alfred Hitch hitchcock homage <laughs> but you see people that try to do their own contemporary 1950s horror or sci-fi flicks and they try to turn up the cheese you know instead of turning it up to 11 they turn it up to 25 and there is such a thing as too much cheese and <laughs> This film just strikes that balance of saying, you know, we're going to emulate that style in the 1990s and just let it be what it is. So it winds up having a lot of charm, even though you are getting exactly the setup of, OK, we we know that there's something out there and then we see somebody die to know that it's deadly and then we see how they kill somebody so we know that it works and now the plot can move forward yeah. i think what also helps is the believability of the characters themselves like you actually care for these people you actually hope that they're going to survive you're rooting for them every step of the way the only one i was really hoping was going to get turned into food was the annoying kid oh yeah he made it didn't he Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I mean, they can't kill a kid. Not in a PG-13. Yeah, they could kill a kid in a PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Travis. All right. So do you have any, I'm going to take Brian's question and, and toss it at you. Like, do you have any scenes in this movie that really, I mean, obviously the rec room, but any other scenes that jump out at you that you just love in this movie? Well, obviously, yeah, the rec room. Uh, that's first and foremost. I enjoyed the sequence of the central characters, Earl and Valentine, which side note, I loved their whole dynamic together. Yeah. I mean, they, their chemistry was so good. As they're driving down the road and they keep encountering these monstrosities. Uh, graboids, whether, you know, if you will. Well, either either <laughs> they, they have a slight encounter with a graboid or they keep finding evidence that graboid has been there. And the tension is mounting. Like first they find the, the old Fred who was up an electrical pole. And then they find the old farmer who all that's left is his face under his hat, which is gross. I always wonder as a kid, like, wait, how is that a farm? He's literally hoeing dirt and sand. Anyway, <laughs> he's a dirt farmer. He's a dirt farmer. And then they find the doc and his wife or their car, which has been pulled underground. I'm like, y'all, y'all really need to get on a different road. <laughs> you're just you're on the wrong highway. Well, there's only one road. That's the point. There's no way yeah. out of town. But it, it did a great job of you felt the rising tension. Yeah. Of them wondering what's going on, what is happening, and was a good series of scenes. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Well, me, I, I just love seeing this film through your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I watched this recently as a sick movie and my, like I, when I had COVID, I watched a lot of bad movies. Like it's, I wasn't in for an intense emotional experience. I just want to see lights and sounds that, you know, I don't feel bad if I fall asleep during. And this was the perfect sick day movie. My wife comes in and looks at that and just said, my dad loved this movie. And that was all <laughs> she said. And she left the room. <laughs> Brian, I know you've only seen bits and pieces, but was there anything that stood out to you? Uh, well, honestly, the only thing that I can even remember was that clip that you showed us during Monster of the Week, where Bert's carefully lines up and takes his shot and accidentally he kills the monster, but he accidentally also kills the car. That was actually from Tremors 2. Oh, was that Tremors 2? Yeah. <laughs> Mike, so, have you seen that one? I feel that I have been denied critical need to know information which was <laughs> which was a line that we quote my my college roommate and i quoted at at nauseam to each other and to my then girlfriend because that was just so her personality <laughs> and i say that affectionately for legal um, reasons yeah it's yeah i i've only seen tremors two once but my view on it is that it's rare that a sequel ends up being as good as the original and this one is not <laughs> <laughs> but that being said i found it enjoyable it was okay mostly due to the acting of bert and earl those two were entertaining enough to kind of carry it now I want to see this movie redone, except with Bert and Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but speaking if of giant creatures. Still alive, he would take you up on that. Yes, he would. <laughs> speaking of giant creatures that come up under the ground, I want to talk about giant creatures that are above the ground as another bad movie that I love. And 
That's basically anything that begins with Godzilla versus. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and there are a ton of them because so many have come out over the past 50 years. I mean, Toho <clears throat> figured out a formula that worked, and boy, did they stick with it. <laughs> for better or for worse. And uh, I knew as a kid that these were not the heights of cinema. They would not be counted among the great works of cinema. And I didn't care one bit. Because <laughs> it was giant monsters fighting, destroying miniature landscapes, and kicking aside model tanks, airplanes, and laser guns. It sounds like a sort of thing that you really hope that the people making this just enjoyed the heck out of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. This I've isn't going to the Academy Award winning film no. for the beginning. <laughs> like I, I can tell you right now, I've watched a lot of Godzilla movies. I can't tell you the human side plot of a single one of them. <laughs> I can't tell you a character's name. I can't tell you anything about their wants, their needs, their loves, their their losses. Couldn't care a bit. It begins and ends with Godzilla, as it should be. And not even Rex Dart, Eskimo spy. Oh, he is the exception to the rule. <laughs> okay because of godzilla movies we got a lot of great villains there's scores of kaiju fans there's now so much godzilla lore and history and there's great villains like <clears throat> monster zero guy gone destroya biolante and not so great villains like megalon but then we get the pinnacle the greatest mechanized hero kaiju sidekick of all history in any movies Jet Jaguar. <laughs> Anyone disagrees with me, I will throw down the gauntlet and fight you. I and don't know swords. what's going on here, but I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Brian? I said, and he has swords. Jet Jaguar has swords? No, I meant you have swords, so if somebody and wants I, to oh, fight yes. you. I'm like, wait, Jet, I, I got excited from it. Wait, they're a part of Jet Jaguar I didn't see? He has swords? <laughs> what? <laughs> I was pumped there. Sorry, but didn't mean to excite you for no reason. <laughs> well, Netflix came out with a new Godzilla anime called Godzilla Zero Point, and it has Jet Jaguar in it, re-imaged, and I, I loved it. A lot of the cartoon, especially the plot, is a meandering mess, and I didn't care one bit because I got to see Jet Jaguar. <laughs> for those who want to know more about Jet Jaguar and uh, also Rex Stone. Rex Dart. Rex Dart. Eskimo spy. <laughs> if you're going to watch Godzilla versus Megalon, don't watch the original. Go find the MST 3K episode of Godzilla versus Megalon. You're oh. going to get a much better story, a much tighter <laughs> plot, and you're going to laugh a lot more. And it's just going to be a better day for you. Yeah. Just watch the MST 3K of Godzilla versus Megalon. Is that the one and where they said, I'll see you at the judo range? That's a different one. Was That's that a different one. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I get it so many of them conflated these days. Yeah, bring your aikido rifle. <laughs> we'll do some skeet kundo. I really hope that's in the film. I know it's not, but I mean, you really have to be a certain type of person to love kaiju movies, and especially to love the old Godzilla stuff. And I absolutely am, and I'm okay with that. Because I love the new ones that have just come out these last few years. Godzilla, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Godzilla versus Kong. I love the originals, too. 
Um, it's a little harder to like the original Godzilla versus King Kong. Let me tell you right now, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, um, just don't. Just, we've all we've, just don't. We've all gone onto YouTube and seen the tree in the mouth scene. Yes, that's the pinnacle of the movie. Before that and after that, it's all downhill. So, <laughs> so yeah. What else? Uh, well, for me, when I thought about the the bad movies that I love the most, uh, the name that floated to the top was The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Oh, my gosh. 1984 classic. <laughs> this is the absolute best bad movie I've ever seen. And it's I, I don't know how to explain it, really. I mean, it's like it fully embraces its camp and yet somehow it's playing things straight at the same time. Like it's it's satirizing itself somehow. Yeah, but um, without being over the top. I mean, this film is just beautifully unpretentious. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. I mean, okay, well, let's talk about the central character, and we'll, that'll give you an idea <laughs> of of what kind of movie this is. Because Buckaroo is, Bonsai is his name. Buckaroo Bonsai. His name is Buckaroo Bonsai, and he is Good a brain guy. surgeon slash particle physicist slash adventurer slash test pilot slash rock star. He's got his own comic book. <laughs> in universe, there's a Buckaroo Banzai comic book. Everybody knows who he is. And if he wasn't the inspiration behind uh, a lot of Atomic Robo and his team of action scientists, I will eat my shoe. <laughs> 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 you know, and that's that tells you what you need to know about what kind of a movie it is. And from all of this, it's like how they managed to pull together the cast that they had. Because this thing has, uh, first of all, Buckaroo Banzai himself is played by Peter Weller. It's got Christopher Lloyd, Jeff Goldblum, John That's Lithgow. A cowboy. Uh, yeah, Jeff Goldblum is a cowboy. Uh, look up Jeff Goldblum and Buckaroo Bonsai. You'll see his costume. <laughs> it's, it's sublime. <laughs> and they cut scenes with Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, why? <laughs> Wait, she was in the film and is not? There were a couple of scenes apparently with Bonsai's parents. And she was, she was uh, his mother. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I guess, you know. That found its way to the cutting room floor. <laughs> I I actually am glad that there is at least one scene that Christopher Lloyd did not get cut because he actually won an award for this film. And it was the most emphatic use of an obscene hand gesture from a background character. It was beautiful. Wait, he actually did win that award? I, I mean, that was he, just a micism. I mean, he, I will create that award and give it to him before this episode <laughs> airs. Obviously, yes. <laughs> What's funny is that I missed it the first time. Like, I'm watching the film and my daughter is busting up laughing. And I'm like, what? Like, watch that guy. And so I back it up. And there it is. Like, just he had his whole body in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I have to go back and watch all of this movie. <laughs> my name is Big Boutet. <laughs> Just why? Why? But yes, of course it is. <laughs> the production design is awful. I mean, the, the design of the aliens, the, the rubber suits, the complete immobility of their faces. I mean, we've talked about uh, uh, the makeup on Babylon 5 and how amazing it was that uh, Andreas Katzelis could emote through that makeup. There's none of that in this movie. I mean, the masks are just static. I don't think they're attached to the, the actors' faces at all. <laughs> <laughs> and the 
the the one on the spaceship is wearing like a feathered boa or something for some reason i just don't understand <laughs> I, the, the film begs you to not understand yes but embrace <laughs> and what's funny is as awful as the production design is it looks like they just went into a radio shack and said give us all of the stuff that nobody will ever buy and we're just going to glue it all together and make gadgets so for radio shack that's like half the store right right pretty much <laughs> it originally had a the cinematographer from blade runner uh which you think you know this is going to make a good looking movie but the producer thought oh no this is looking too much like blade runner so we'll fire that guy the replacement dp wasn't bad i mean the the camera work is actually pretty good um the lighting is uninspired. It's a lot more conventional look, but it didn't hide any of those rubber alien costumes that they really wanted to put in darkness. I mean, I think that this is just further evidence that this film wasn't trying to be more than what it was. No, certainly not. And all of that is actually kind of a draw for me, I think. It's not really a lampoon and it's not a parody. It's not even really, I mean, it's got some some stuff in it that makes you think, okay, this is a comedy, like the uh, the computer readout that says first the, the jet car is signed, and then it's sealed, and then it's delivered into the eighth dimension. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I think if I were going to compare it to something, it's got a lot less in common with like the works of Mel Brooks than it does with The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. I'm not going to put... I'm not going to be so uh, audacious as to put the Princess Bride into this category, but they've got a similar kind of approach to the the material. And I, I get what you're saying there, because it's it was one of the difficulties when they were trying to sell the Princess Bride. It did not do well in the theaters, mm -hmm. because when you ask the marketing people, well, what kind of film are you selling? They had to admit that they didn't know. <laughs> well, and it's right there in the script. Well, it's got everything. Fencing, fighting, true love, giants. <laughs> Torture, revenge, true love, miracles. And that's not a tagline. <laughs> no, no, that's that doesn't go into the logline very well. I think that the Buckaroo Banzai is pretty similar. Like, what kind of film is this? Other than yeah. saying it's a lighthearted, campy adventure. But that's that doesn't quite encapsulate it's, the zaniness. Oh, and it's not going to tell you anything about what it's going to be like to watch it. <laughs> That's for sure. The the exposition is like, it's got this like opening crawl Star Wars style that tells you who Buckaroo Banzai is and what's what's happening. But it doesn't really give you any the necessary information. It's like having to watch The Empire Strikes Back without ever having seen Star Wars. There's a lot of stuff going on here, and I don't understand any of it. And why is that watermelon there? <laughs> Even after listening to both of you guys talk about this movie for a while now, I feel like I'm going to watch it and still have no idea what it was I just saw. Accurate. Correct. <laughs> Which means I'm going to have to watch it again, and that will be two more times than I've ever seen it currently, and then I'm just going to start getting angry. The, <laughs> the day after Thanksgiving, grab your youngest, sit down with the dog and watch this film, because that's, that's the best way to see this. Well, I have a friend who every year on his birthday for his whole life, he had watched Dudley Do-Right. And this is another one that goes into this category, a movie that he loves and acknowledges fully this is a bad movie, but it's his birthday. He's going to watch Dudley Do-Right. And one year after we'd watched Dudley Do-Right, I said, OK, now we got to watch this other movie. And 
I believe in the six years since then, every year he has watched Dudley Do Right and Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> That's wow. grand. So I have a question, and I'm, we're going to put the same question back to you, Brian. Are there any scenes in this movie or any moments in this movie that just stand out to you? Um, so I think the the early sequence where he's in the jet car and he's about to, to break through the, the dimensional wall in the eighth dimension is one that it kind of encapsulates a lot of the movie right there in that one scene. And the uh, the concert. Um, <laughs> because, of course, he's a rock star. Uh, yes, of course. He, he and all of his uh, I didn't even mention the Hong Kong Cavaliers because he's got this crew of other experts in their fields and they all dress like maniacs and they're all musicians. Is that the name of the band, the Hong Kong Cavaliers? Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Okay, no joke. That's actually a solid name for a yes, band. It <laughs> but they're playing their, their set and then somehow over the noise of the, the music, he hears someone crying. So he interrupts and he says, do I hear someone crying? And of course, they introduce the uh, romantic lead at this point. And the, the whole time, she's, she tells him her name is Penny Pretty, and he keeps calling her Peggy. <laughs> and you think, okay, well, this is just a gag. He's pretending to really care, and he's, he's getting her name wrong. But then you find out later on that she's the twin sister of his dead wife, whose name was Peggy. Yes, the movie just gets more absurd. <laughs> And so that scene where the, the expressions on his face and he's got this, I think Peter Weller is really undersold as an actor. I mean, especially his lower jaw, I think did a much better job in RoboCop than anybody ever read, gave him credit for. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's giving you this, this notion that he's out of touch. But when you rewatch it and you realize what he's actually thinking, you're getting a little bit of his, his emotional tenor in it. But he's very... Considering how absurd the whole movie is and everybody around him is, he's kind of understated. Oh, unless I forget, I meant, meant to mention that he was also the hero who made bow ties cool long before the 11th Doctor. So there. <laughs> well, that's going to change the way that I view what's on my neck right now. <laughs> uh, anyway, I totally lost where I was going, which is not at all surprising considering we're talking about that movie. You were you were talking about Penny Pretty and Peggy and how uh, and the moment and the scene that he... Oh, that... right. The question was what the scenes were that, that stand out to me. So yeah, the concert scene and the, the jet car scene are the ones. What about you, Mike? I... Wow. Um, I'm never going to get over Jeff Goldblum as a cowboy, as a stereotypical... Hollywood cowboy and I don't mean the golden era of Hollywood when they were making westerns I mean when they somebody said they really wanted a jazzed up chintzy cowboy and that's what the prop department put together it didn't even go to costuming somehow <laughs> the prop department used hammers and nails and put this thing together and it was just golden um no I I've only seen the film once and really it was it was the experience of the absurdism uh with my child and just being able to enjoy not laugh at the film on its own terms but really just kind of embrace embrace the weirdness on its own terms <laughs> so not a moment but just the whole shtick i think oh and of course i should also mention the uh end credits that's what I was going to bring up, actually. In the aqueduct. 
because while I have not seen this movie, I do have a favorite scene. <laughs> it's the oh only gosh. scene of this movie I have actually seen, and that's the end credits. I can remember sometime when I was younger uh, flipping through channels, and I stopped for a moment because there's who I thought was Pee Wee Herman standing at the top <laughs> of an aqueduct. Compare the suits, okay? They're near identical. Yes. And it is, it is not an invalid comparison. <laughs> and suddenly this synthesized music starts up, which actually isn't bad. It's, it's, <laughs> it's very fun. It is. And I'm like, okay, the music's kind of cool. And then all these people start walking up to join this guy. And I mean, it couldn't be any more 80s <laughs> if it tried. The guys with the super skinny ties. One dude's got his suit jacket pushed up past his elbows. One guy's wearing a large white coat and a bandana with no shirt. And, and then a big, there's big medallion. Don't and forget a big, the medallion. Oh, yeah, the medallion. And then there's <laughs> then there's Jeff Goldblum. There's cowboy Jeff Goldblum. What is happening here? And and then they just start walking. And not just walking as a stroll, they are walking with purpose. They mean I mean, it. With an occasional dance step. Yes. These are power strides. I'm like, what? what's going on? What are they doing? Wait, this is the end? <laughs> I thought this was the beginning of a movie. If that's the end credits, I can only imagine what the actual movie must be like. No, no, no you can't. You cannot. <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect day after Thanksgiving movie. It really is. I think we have said everything about Buckaroo Bonzi that can be said. You know, there's probably more movies that we could go back and realize, man, that wasn't good, but I loved it so much. Like, for myself, I mean, I used to love Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It did so great at the box office. It's not <laughs> a great movie. It may not even be an adequate movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Alan Rickman and uh, Morgan Freeman? I mean, can't be okay. terrible. Yeah, it's not just Alan Rickman. It's Alan Rickman being told that he has carte blanche to do with the character <laughs> what he wants. I actually started rewatching that film at some point. I don't remember why. I know that I didn't finish it, but I think it might be because my wife came back in town. and <laughs> like, No, we have one television and you're not going to pollute the room. <laughs> it's a movie worth watching for the soundtrack alone. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> But we could talk about many, many more. And honestly, we may have to revisit this subject. We might have to look at TV shows that are bad that we still love anyway. I couldn't help it. Sorry. Or listeners, do you have a movie that you just cherish and you know it's not great? Go ahead and tell us what terrible movies you love on our on our Facebook, our Twitter, our social media. And we'd be happy to hear your thoughts. And on that note... Because there are certainly no bad zombie movies. <laughs> Let's go to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us today? This time, we're going to be protecting our assets by getting zombie insurance. I found a policy that protects against not only superhero collateral damage, of which there is a lot, damage from giant mechs, aliens, zombies, and acts of Godzilla. It's pricey, <laughs> but after all is said and done, it really is worth the peace of mind. Man, Godzilla insurance must be through the roof because... <laughs> 
<laughs> one, the roof is gone, and two, you know that after he goes out to sea, it's just going to be maybe about a year, year and a half. He's going to come right back out of it. Dun 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 dun. Oh come on, I just rebuilt. Dun 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 dun. The crazy thing is, you've got to buy separate kaiju insurance for each different monster. I, you know, it's just Godzilla, and then I'm moving. Yeah. It's making me rethink my decision to live in Los Angeles, that's for sure. <laughs> Somewhere off the Pacific Ocean would probably be better. Honestly, I think anywhere other than Japan and we're cool. <laughs> so I don't know. I saw him lay waste to San Francisco a couple of years ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Good point. And I think that that is going to wrap it up for us this episode. Thank you all for listening in. Uh, make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com. And at facebook.com slash geek at arms. Mike, what's our Twitter? We are arms geek on Twitter. Check us out on iTunes or through the podcast listening app of your choice. If you would, please leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. It really does help the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.